Afternoon, everybody. Nice to be here. Thank you for asking me to come back. That's really kind of you. I just wonder if you could pop the text up. That'd be great. Um, so you get a free subject, and it's like a real liberty. It's a really cool thing to get a free subject. But at the same time, the Bible's a huge book. So I'm flicking through the pages frantically and prayerfully, I should add, prayerfully looking and thinking, what do I share with the good people of Christchurch this week? And to be honest, this verse didn't jump out of the pages at me, but this verse is one of these verses that's been with me since I was about seven. So I thought it might give you an opportunity just to see a little bit of what the Bible means to me and how it can affect my life. And I guess as a, as a kid, I thought about the race in a really simple way. It gave me some understanding of, I guess, what, what Christian life can be about. I guess the fact, very simply, that there can be a beginning and an end. And this idea, I guess going through college, that there would be the, ro- the road marked out for me. At college um, and at school, and I guess at work as well, Christian life can be a bit of a struggle. And there is a unique calling that we call to. So this verse really spoke to me in those times. And I guess as well for long periods of my life, long, long periods of my life, I've been pretty passive as a Christian. Kind of drifted my faith. I don't know if that's your experience. You're never going to nod your head to that one, but maybe it is. And this verse really called me out. The Bible can do that to us sometimes, can it? It can just really speak into our lives. And this idea that I'm a participant and that I'm not somebody who can just let it slip by them and walk into the kingdom of heaven, there is something that comes with this commitment that we make to Jesus. So keep your eyes fixed on these verses. So this letter is a letter written to Jewish Christians, so that's to say that people that have left Judaism and have gone on to faith in Christ. And the passage would challenge them to hold on to the teachings and not just to drift back. And if you go through the book of Hebrews, you'll see that it deals systematically with these things. It's um, it's one of those books, Hebrews, that is a bit removed from us in that... When you watch Downton Abbey sometimes, you watch Downton Abbey sometimes, and, and they're sat around the table and there's some scandalous music comes on and you think, what, what's, particularly, well, maybe it's a man thing, but you think, well, what's happened? And it's, it, what's happened is a lady spoke up at the table and that is a scandal in those times. And what you have to do to watch Downton Abbey and get anything out of it is to get your hundred years ago head on and understand what's happening. With the book of Hebrews, you've got to do a pretty similar thing. You've got to take off your... 2015 head and put on your first century Jewish head because it deals with some pretty specific Jewish issues. What do you do with Moses? What does a, Christ, a guy who's left Judaism to become a Christian do with Moses? What does he do with the law now that Jesus has come? What does he do with the priests? So you're a Jewish kid and your whole life, whenever you've gone wrong, you go to see a priest. And this book that we're going to look at in Hebrews deals with all that systematically. And basically the argument of the book is Jesus is better. It's very simple. Jesus is better than the old system of the law. Jesus is better in the priesthood. And you think about it, the verse would, this verse would tell us that Jesus is sat down. Now to us that might flick over our heads a little bit, but to a Jewish ear, you read about a priest being sat down. That's not the language that they use in Leviticus, and it's not the language that they use a chapter back in chapter 10, when it said the priest is always on his feet. He's always stood up because the sin keeps coming so much. So this book, Hebrews, works through a lot of these fairly complicated 
ideas. But within these fairly complicated ideas, there's some really simple stuff. There's some simple instructions. And a simple Yorkshireman like me, they stick out like a sore thumb. So I'm going to work through them. Chapter 2, verse 1. We, may, we must pay careful attention to what we've learned so we do not drift away. Chapter 3, 15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And I guess the reference is to like you did in the desert. Chapter 6, verse 1. Let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. Chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Chapter 10, 36. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I won't be pleased with him. And finally, chapter 6, 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. That may just be me, but there's some references in there. The idea of shrinking back, swerving off, drifting away. Hebrew is very complicated book, but I imagine it very simply as a, a bunch of Jewish Christians who've converted to Christianity. They've got in this, I have a picture of a boat in my head. And they've got in this boat and they've set sail for Christ-centered living. They've set sail for total change. They've set sail for obedience. And they've got off the shore and they've just started to drift back into Judaism. Because actually, it's been such a huge part of their life. Their Jewish tradition I guess it would be like maybe a Muslim converting to Christianity. In some respects, you lose your identity. You lose your national identity. And these Jews were drifting back into Judaism. I want to challenge you tonight, very simply, as a Christian who's drifted, it's very easy to drift along in your faith and drift away from a radical relationship with Jesus into something that's just empty religion. And how do I know? Because... For a good while, that's been my story. And I've been able to turn up at church and bluff my way through it. But we're called to something different, aren't we? In Bournemouth a few years ago, um, I was trying to think how I could avoid, it sounds terrible, avoid being around the kids is, is the truth of it. And the sun was out and the beach seemed like a wonderful place. But the kids, you know, when you've got kids, they've got 101 things they want to ask you. And I just got my brother's dinghy and I saw these people lying out at sea and I took the dinghy out and I swam out. And I just drifted off. And I wasn't asleep, but I could hear the kids' voices getting ever more distant in the background. I thought, oh, yes, this is holiday at last. Thank goodness for that. I'm drifting away. And I hadn't gone to sleep. And it didn't seem like very long, but I came around. And before I knew it, I was, I don't know, I'm prone to exaggeration, but half a mile, just ridiculous amount of way down the shore. And I figured out that day, if I was going to stay in the right place, I had to focus on the horizon, pick a building out, and it required me to work pretty constantly just to stay in the same place. And that's so what our Christian faith is like, I think. And I think it's where this verse would point us. It calls out these Jewish Christians who have been changed and then just slowly started to adopt part of their old Jewish lifestyle. And it says to them, remember what you were called to? Focus on Jesus and these deeper challenges, it really says, just survey him. Look closely into his life. Inspect it. See how he ran the race and how he finished the race. And refix your attention and follow him. 
Do you remember, and I guess as I reflected on my life, I realized there were times in my life when, when I wasn't drifting and when I wanted to pray to God because I really needed to talk to him. It was, I need to converse with you, God, because I'm really making a mess of my life. I wasn't drifting. I was grabbing hold of God. There was a time in my life, and hopefully that's the time in my life I'm in now, when I come to church, not just because it's what you do when you're a Christian, you come to church. I came to church because I was spiritually starving and I needed some food. I'm challenging you, I guess. If you think you might be bearing some of the symptoms of a drifting Christian, as I have done, and focus on Christ. And this, these passages we're going to look at really form an antidote to the kind of drifting Christian. They're a real rallying cry to the Christian that might be drifting along. And I guess the text builds to this point. So the text starts with a therefore. I should get to the text, shouldn't I? It starts with a therefore. And it's a bit of an old school preacher's trick. But when you get a therefore, you ask yourself, what's it there for? And it's there to tell us that the that writer is not going in a new direction. He's not stepping off in something new. He's actually building on what he's already written down in chapter 11. And in chapter 11, there is this, we, we looked at the last part of it, but there's this huge long list of the heroes of the faith. Now, we are quite inspired by that list, but if you're a Jewish guy and you read through that list, you'll have remembered the times that your dad or the local rabbi or your uncle, whatever he was called, sat you down at night before there was TV, before there was anything else, and told you the story of Samson, or told you the story of Moses, or anything, and you could recall it vividly. These were heroes. So when we read this, it's like, yeah, that's interesting. We know about these stories. A Jewish person reads this, it's huge. And they're already there, they're already inspired, and they're desperate to know what's coming next. And it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything, let's run. So I looked into the word surrounded, did a bit of a word study, and it means a bit more, I guess, than I imagined it would mean. It means the impression of being hemmed in, being tightly packed around. So when you think of surrounded, don't think um, Western film with Indians on the horizon that you can, you know, you know that they're there, you know that there's going to be trouble, but they're miles away. They're no real worry. Think Anfield, perhaps, when Liverpool need a goal and the crowd is just right on top of the pitch. Or think... Tour de France, when it came to Yorkshire. Do you remember that imagery? Do you remember that? I, can't, I was trying to think where it is. There was a point where they cycled up a little hill over, over Sheffield kind of way, and the crowds were just hemmed in either side of them, and they were roaring them on, and the crowd was kind of going, come on, I'm losing my headpiece here, like just screaming at them to carry on running. And there was an impression of, even though you saw the pain and the anguish contorted on these cyclists' faces, the impression was, there's no way they're not going to get to the top, given this crowd that is roaring them on. And that's the kind of picture that we've got here, this crowd of heroic witnesses roaring them on. We could probably take it even further, because these were Jews, inspired by a Jewish crowd roaring them on. So we could imagine it's, it's a bit like Paul, who I, I, I know is a cycling enthusiast, or at least I've seen the picture, on the wall. It's like Paul coming to this, to this hill on a wet Wednesday afternoon and looking at it and thinking, I'm already in trouble with Rachel just for being out on the bike. I don't really fancy it. There's no way I'm going to get up. But if you could imagine that his heroes of the cycling world were there, and I don't know who they are, so I'm guessing a little bit that it might be Wiggins and Hoy or whoever. And if it was all those people and they were screaming, come on, Paul, then you would just think it's not 
unlikely that he'd get to the top. It's inevitable that he would try his hardest to get to the top. And that's the picture that we've got here. This roaring crowd gives us every reason to push on. I guess I thought about characters that have run the race well, finished the race well, that would inspire us. I heard a little bit this week about the story of Ponte Cons, which I didn't know and I wasn't familiar with. And I heard that there was a point where it was, this might be way in the past, when it was struggling and looking to shut down. And but for the faith of a few people, it grew and it grew and it grew. And then, I don't know how many years down the line, it spawned another church. And today we sit here, unbelievably, as it still seems to me, in escape, with this, you know, due to the amazing faith of a couple of people, of a couple of people who ran well. Let's be inspired. Do a bit of church history digging. Read up on a few missionaries that have run the race well. And finish. I thought church history would be the most boring subject in the world. And I spent a week studying it back at college, and I was completely moved and inspired by these Christian men and women who faithfully ran well and finished the race. That's the picture. Inspiring crowd athlete with eyes fixed on Jesus so the story progresses to its summit and it reminds us to look to Christ the message I would like to put under your noses is and it's very simplistic it's just to keep going because of the because of Christ and what he's done because of the inspiring crowd very simply just keep going you might think I want a bit more than that Ash I want a bit more than that from the guy who stood at the front. But that's the message you're getting. Just keep going. I do the park run. Anybody else do the park run in here on a Saturday morning? And there is a guy. He's the marshal on the very first corner. It's called Ken. He's done 100 park runs. Everybody knows. Everybody that does park run knows his story. And when I'm... First time I go past him, it's fine. Because I'm just setting off. And I've got enough enthusiasm to carry myself past him. But when I come back around him past him the second time, my lungs are burning up. And I feel like death warmed up and I don't really want to run anymore and what I want from Ken is come on Ash you're doing brilliant or Ash you look great or Ash this race is going to change your life and what I get is keep going keep going and every time I, I think come on Ken give me, I need more but actually to hear that from a guy who's finished the race it's the right advice to hear it from a man who's finished the race very simply Keep going. So I want to encourage you in your Christian walk. Take the next step. Be faithful. Be somewhere different next year than you are this year. Get past this struggle with sin that's holding you back right now. Take a step of faith. Keep going. Next verse says, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run. Let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles and let us run. There aren't many passages in the Bible that deal with public nudity. And you might be thinking, and you're probably going to be referring back to your Bible now, it's just got interesting, hasn't it? You, you know, there aren't many passages in the Bible that would do that, let alone encourage public nudity, but this is one. What is the picture that Paul's trying to present to us? It's one of, my wife's going, what? Where's he going here with this? <laughs> it's of an Olympian. Now, I don't know if you know much about Olympic history, but back in the day, the very first Olympics, the competitors would compete with, I'm led to believe, nothing on, or very little on, because 
it was the school of thought was that the more clothes you had on, the less well you would do, the more that they would thwart you and hold you back. And that is the picture that's presented here. Strip everything off. Make yourselves so you can run as fast as you can, so you can hold nothing back. I think we can have a bit of a wrong image of sin in our heads. I think I lived my life for a long time thinking that sin was something that kind of came along the journey with me. And as I lived my Christian life, I kind of dipped into a bit of sin and it kind of didn't do me any harm. And I think I misunderstood what sin was. I think I misunderstood what the devil was trying to do with sin. Because that's not what happens. The passage says that the sin is trying to thwart the athlete. He doesn't want to just give him a distraction along the way. It wants to bind him up and tie him up completely. There's a passage that would talk of the devil as, I think it's in Peter, that would remind us that the devil is a lion roaring around looking for somebody to devour. The devil doesn't want to just trip us up. He doesn't want to run along the road alongside us to give us a bit of a distraction every now and again. The devil wants to end it for us. There's passages in the Bible that refer to him as the accuser. And I think back to parts of my Christian life where I've tried to get back at it again. And I've really been felt fixed and trapped by the sin. And that's very much the picture that's here. This sin that you just get tangled up in, that messes you up, that holds you back. And the message of the Bible is really clear. And it's pretty dramatic, isn't it? Strip it off. Cut it out. Take as much of it away as you can. I've got this plant in my garden. My mum gave it to me. Um, and I can't seem to get anything to grow in my garden. And she said, this will be all right. It's pretty durable. And I put it in, and it's a horrible thing. But it grew, and I was like, oh, thank goodness, something is growing in my garden. But it grew over everything. And I kept going back to this plant, and every summer I would just chop a little bit away of it. But it just kept growing more and more until eventually I just really had this plant and I didn't have anything else that could survive. And so last summer, I stood aggressively with my shovel and plowed it in and just butchered the garden, dug the whole thing up and ripped it out at its root. Because if I didn't, it would just keep coming back. And that's the picture that the Bible would give us of sin. When it talks about stuff like sexual immorality, for example, it doesn't say dabble doesn't say see how you go, doesn't say work your way through it, it says flee. Get as far away from it as you can. And that's the drastic picture that this athlete stripping off before us would present. Just get as much of the distraction and as much of the sin out of the way as you can. Don't conform, strip it off, get it away if you can. Second point. I guess, about this verse, is that is a real encouragement for us to travel light, isn't there? The athlete would do far better. And you think about the way that they make sports gear at the moment. They're not looking for you to, to wear more. They're looking for you to wear less. So when Usain Bolt stands at the start of the finishing line, his trainers weigh next to nothing. I don't know if he's got socks on, but his T-shirt weighs next to nothing. Because the idea is you can do better and you can travel further like that. I did the three peaks of... Yorkshire yesterday, I don't know if you've ever done the three peaks of Yorkshire, I had the wrong kit because I had too much kit. And I found out after a couple of hours that the message is you need to have as little with you as you can get away with in order for you to finish the journey. And I had 
a spare pair of shoes, tons of water, lots of biscuits. And I ended up after four hours thinking, this is really tough. And actually there were people who would just throw stuff away. The message really, if we want to run for Christ, we have to have as little distraction in our life as we can. And it may involve cutting some things off, cutting some things back in order that we can run. Having said all of that about being dramatic with sin, I would recognize I grew up in a bit of a sheltered house. It's quite a narrow worldview. Didn't see loads of the world. And the impression I got, my mum and dad bless them, and I'm not on my own in this, was that sin's out there in the bad world. And in here, you're fine. And love them, they, they did right by me, but that's the wrong idea for us to have in our heads about what sin is. There was a study done, and my wife put it under my nose last week, about an American family. So you know that sometimes in American Christian culture, there are strict curfews, there are rules about what you can wear, there's no TV in the house, and there's all this effort, to, I guess, to be drastic and cut sin out. But what happened, and I'm not going to tell you, you can Google it after if you want, it's not always working out very well. There are some horror stories about kids that really go off the rails in this environment. And I think it might be down to the fact that we have a misview of sin. Because sin is not just out there. Sin is in here. It's probably in here too. We need to have a right view. And the Bible would tell us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In fleeing from sin, let's remember that it's not just about cutting things out. It's about what goes on in here. Nearly every time Paul talks about the battle with sin, he talks about the battle of the mind. Let's make sure that we flee from sin by our actions, but let's remember it's about what's in our mind as well. Run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So I guess I've hinted already, it's about being active, not passive. It would remind us that it's a long race. And the temptation when we get saved, when we become a Christian, when we enter a relationship with God is that you put your feet up. But the reality is that's just you putting your running shoes on. We're in a long race. Don't think sports day, have a go hero dad who turns up having not run for 10 years, puts his running trainers on and thinks, I can still do it. I can still rock up and win this. Think committed athlete who trains every day. It's worth just stopping to think about the long race. And I was nervous to say this, but it's the truth. Sometimes in our Christian walk, it feels very hard, doesn't it? And the temptation to stop your Christian walk is great, whether it's through doubts, whether it's through peer pressure. And the devil will put this little voice in your head that says, you don't have to do this. And it's a very difficult thing to get out of. If you're a runner, and I had this just the other day, I was... I was out for a run, and this voice in your head, and sometimes it can be a real conversation with me, says, why are you doing this to yourself? You don't, you've got nothing to prove. You're 36, you passed it. It doesn't matter if the belly comes. It's inevitable. It's coming. Just stop, and I'll say back, who's this talking? And it'll be, your, your lungs. Your lungs are talking to you. And then I'll say, well, just keep quiet. I'm okay with this. And then my lungs start burning up, and then my feet will say, well, my feet hurt. And then my head will say, well, you look pathetic. And this conversation goes on and on. And the temptation to stop is just so great. 
And the message very simply is that the race is going to be a long one. What you're going to need is the right mindset. What does the Bible tell us? That we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds. The nature of that verse is it's not something that's just going to happen one day and then stop. This is ongoing. Change is difficult once. It's exhausting to go through change once. We have been changed every day until we reach the gates of heaven. That's going to be exhausting. It's a long-distance race. You talk to any endurance athlete at all, and they will tell you, you've got to be fit. Yep, that's right. But the battle will be up here. You're going to run a marathon somewhere down the line. You're going to have to tell yourself that you can do it. You're going to have to tell yourself that you can finish. We need the right Christian mindset. It's not a short race. It's not a sprint. It's not something that we can switch off from. We have to be geared up to run. Some application for you then just to think about. Just something to think about. We need to get up on a morning and we need to say, I'm going to choose Christ today. I'm going to choose him every day. I'm going to live for him all the time. And I guess when I reflected back to myself, the times I've been nearest to stopping is the, is the peer pressure. And I guess particularly at college and in early work life, I've thought, this is just... And I think I've probably said it to God. This is too much. I can't cope with this. We need the right... Christian mindset because it's a tough race and it's a hard race in all of these things the verse would lead us to fix our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith here's why for the joy set before him he endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In all this, the encouragement is for us to fix our eyes on Jesus. I heard on the radio just the other day, Olympians, and I can't even think when the Olympics is now, but I think it's about two years away. They're already physically in their minds focusing on the start of the race. They're already thinking about their dietary requirements. They're already thinking about their sleep patterns. Everything that they do is geared. I read about the Brownlee brothers that they've abandoned certain races just to focus on this event. Such is their fixed gaze. Such is their desire to succeed. When I go out for a little run, I leave a glass of water on my back step. And in my weaker moments, when that voice in my head is chelping away at me, I focus my whole mind and body on this glass of water and fix my gaze on it. I try and look up to see where my house is. It's about two miles away. I can see it and I fix my attention on it. Eyes on the prize. Why can we focus on Jesus? He's the author and perfecter of the faith. I talked before about Ken Bingley who'd run 100 park runs and told me to keep going. We can trust Jesus because this text would say now that he's sat down. He's finished. And we read in the Bible that he was there at the start originating us and originating this race and now he's finished this race and he sat down why can we fix our eyes on Jesus because of who he is and how he lived this text would encourage us to look at how he lived and how he considered the cross for the joy that was set before him I've read a few accounts of people who were crucified and it's not a joy and he saw the greater glory that was after the cross and that was the church. And he had his eyes fixed on that. 
And it says there that he scorned its shame. Jesus looked at the worst that man could do to him, the very worst, the worst thing that you could do to him, and he scorned it. He went, nah, doesn't matter. For the joy that's set before me, I can live with that. And this text says, look at your Savior. Look at Jesus. Look how he lived. Look at how he ran the perfect race. Look now at how he's finished that race. Fix your eyes on this man. It's interesting what we can take from this. It doesn't tell us to become theological experts. It doesn't tell us to become the best church attenders of all time in order to finish the race. It says very simply, fix your eyes on Jesus. Focus on him. It's the message for us today. I want to close just by reading out um, how the message depicts these verses. Do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blazed the way, all these veterans cheering us on, it means we'd better get on with it. Strip down, start running. Never quit. No extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way, cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor, right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item. That long litany of hostility he plowed through, that will shoot adrenaline into your souls. Very simply, in the wreck that can be life, in the struggle that it can be to be a Christian, Fix your eyes on Jesus and you'll be able to run.